0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So, today we're talking about aesthetics, especially. 18th century German aesthetics. Edmund has recently done this topic at Cambridge, and he's really, really jazzed about it. He's really excited about it. He's got all kinds of thoughts, and so we're going to do it today. Edmund, tell us a little bit about the etymology of the word aesthetics, and then tell us why why this topic, why you're so interested in it. Sure thing. Well,
1: the etymology, um, according to Google, um is rooted in the Greek, ancient Greek, esthestai, apologies for experts in ancient Greek pronunciation um, p- to perceive, um, or aestheta perceptible things. And it was revived um, probably in the German language in the mid to late 18th century, and then uh, spread throughout Europe in the 19th century. Um, but because of the interest of several German authors in uh, reviving this uh, ancient Greek word um, and giving it, giving it a new, new life and new meaning, uh, we see a lot of authors writing about aesthetics around this, uh, around this time, at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, one of the most important seminal works on uh, aesthetics is Immanuel Kant's uh, critiques, um, his critique of pure reason and his critique of practical reason and his critique of, uh, the power of judgment, especially, um, where he focuses on, um, different tastes, uh, or ways of appreciating things like the sublime and beautiful. Um, and Kant thinks that aesthetics are very important because aesthetics, what people appreciate artistically, the kind of taste that people have, can help us mediate, for Kant, between nature and freedom, between what is and what ought to be. Uh, Because in Kant's first critique, the critique of pure reason, Kant looked at how we can understand the world around us, in part how we can perceive the world around us. So there is something aesthetic there. Um, And half of the book is called the Transcendental aesthetic. So there, there, there is something aesthetic already going on there. But it is primarily about what, what there is and how we can know what there is in the world. And the second critique, the critique of practical reason, is about what ought to be, what well, the things that we ought to do. Um, Kant thinks that we ought to do uh, that which everybody, if everybody did it, then it would be okay and we would accept that. And we also ought to act in such a way as to treat people as. Um, an end, not merely as a means. Then, this Kant's third critique, he said, Well, maybe we need to find a way of bridging the gulf between is and ought. Um, between, on the one hand, what he called the phenomenal world, which is the world of scientific causation, mechanical, uh, structural, kind of amoral, and the noumenal world of freedom and morality. And Kant thought that the way of bridging between these two things was through aesthetics. Uh, For Kant, it was possible through appreciating uh, what is beautiful, what is sublime, what is both kind of sensory, what we can see in front of us, but also what is kind of transcendent. We can try to elevate ourselves from is to ought, from reality to morality. It's a kind of you know, strange and interesting argument and um, that animates a lot of the thinkers at this time um, who start thinking about why it is that, um, or whether it is the case that we can use aesthetics in this way. Um, because this kind of suggests that aesthetics might have a political use, because if aesthetics can help us improve ourselves morally, if, uh, as Kant suggests, the beautiful is a symbol or allegory or metaphor for the good, then we can try to put this into practice politically. Um, it seems quite difficult to do that, though, uh, and I think there are numerous ways of trying to uh, trying to phrase it. I guess one way of seeing aesthetics is as stories, as allegories, as metaphors, as images, as styles. And I think one reason I'm really interested in this topic is because people often juxtapose aesthetics on the one hand with substance on the other. There's this opposition between style and substance, between seeming, between appearance and reality. And aesthetics is seen as because it's about perception, what we perceive rather than what actually is. Aesthetics can be seen as a kind of filter or a veil, as something which stops us from seeing the truth because it's clouding our perception. Um, It's uh, the kind of filters that we have. And the original use which Kant uh, tries to Put on aesthetics before he uses this kind of slightly more political idea of aesthetics as a mediation between is and ought, is in the Critique of Pure Reason, when Kant says that, well, the transcendental aesthetic is the forms of how we can see the world. So forms like space and time, Kant thinks that these are. forms of assimilating what we see around us. And he thinks that these forms are kind of subjective, that they are part of us rather than the part of the world. Um, and so Kant thinks that this is, the way we see the world is kind of aesthetic. We don't see it directly. We don't have direct access to the noumenon, to what actually is. We only have access to the phenomenon, to the appearance of, of, of what there is. Um, But there's the other use of aesthetic, which is aesthetic as a kind of not merely a sensory thing, but as a beautiful thing, as something which is sensory, but which seems so much more than sensory, uh, which can be uh, a landscape or a piece of art or, or kind of anything really to do with people or objects. It is the appreciation of what is sensory, what is phenomenal, what is apparent to us, but in a way that kind of makes it seem more than it is. And I think um, that is one interesting line of argument that I'm not quite sure whether
0: it works. I think one way of um, and, considering... Whether, before, yeah. before, before we go on, sure. just to point out, the other position which suggests that this stuff, rather than leading you toward uh, the good or toward truth, that this stuff tends to occlude or conceal. Uh, Plato puts a lot more emphasis on that, on art and aesthetics having an occluding illusory effect. Plato calls it mimesis or imitation, that by imitating you necessarily deform that which you imitate, and therefore represent it in a misleading way where the image is too easily conflated with the real. Kant has a, a bit more of a positive spin on the role of art than Plato. Not to say that Plato's view is, is wholly negative because Plato does reference poetry as part of the education of the guardians in the Republic, but Plato is very worried about art, very worried about it. Mm. Yeah. So is that is part of the reason that you aren't sure if Kant's position works that you think that Plato might be right, or are you bringing in other positions from the 18th century and putting them into conversation with Kant.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the positions in the 18th century that come after Kant are kind of very much post-Kantian. For instance, um, Schiller tries to argue that that the way we've understood the world is far too scientific uh, or kind of reductive and mechanical. And in the Aesthetical education of man, Schiller says that uh, we need to um, go back to Kantian principles, which he's founding his philosophy on, um, but we also have to ensure that, quote, art has to leave reality. It has to raise itself boldly above necessity and neediness, for art is the daughter of freedom. Now, I mean, interestingly, this isn't actually quite Kantian, because for Kant, art, aesthetics, is not the freedom bit. Aesthetics is how we raise ourselves from reality to freedom. Now, and perhaps the notion that art is the daughter of freedom kind of accomplishes this, but I mean, f- for Kant, it really is a way of balancing, rather than a way of just saying no to nature and yes to freedom. It's a way of, in a way, trying to have it both ways. Um, and Kant wants aesthetic judgments to help us uh, raise ourselves um, from nature to freedom, from reality to morality. But I think that there's uh, certainly a degree to which a a lot of this thinking is is post-Kantian. I think Plato definitely is an alternative point of view, because the thing that Kant and these other aesthetic theorists have in common is the time they're writing in, in the era of the Enlightenment, where As Max Horkheimer argued in *The Eclipse of Reason*, there was a pivot from the view of the world in the lens of objective reason as a kind of um, as a unity to the world as divided between particular subjects, particular units um, like Leibniz's monads, kind of basic units of reality which um, don't causally interact with each other but are in a state of pre-established harmony, which is like saying that individuals um, don't necessarily um, blend or merge with one another, but they can still cooperate even though they're totally separate. And so Plato is on the other side of the coin on this more objective reason, unity side of the picture. One of
0: the arguments that you're kind of brushing up against here is the disinterestedness point. Right? Yeah, Kant argues that appreciation for art should be disinterested in the sense that we shouldn't have a a personal or individual agenda involved in our appreciation of art. Mm. And this can be interpreted as a claim that art shouldn't be instrumental, Mm. that art should be valued for its own sake rather than for some kind of functional or instrumental purpose. Mm. And to a large degree prefigures a lot of the further discussion of substantive versus instrumental reason that we've talked about in the German tradition on previous episodes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah which ties in nice to Kant's argument that we should treat people as ends, not means, in the critique of practical reason.
0: Right, that we should treat art as an end and yeah, not means. Yeah, in, in
1: the same way, yeah, treating art and people as ends, yeah. Yeah. Which kind of goes against Horkheimer's uh, interpretation of the Enlightenment as a pivot from ends to means. Because Kant is pivoting from a kind of objective view of the world to a more subjective view of the world. That Though he thinks this is kind of an objective move, he, he is putting the subject at the, at the centre of things. This is his Copernican revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, Instead of saying that we're going around something bigger than ourselves, that we're going around the sun, it's almost as though the whole of the heavens are moving around the subjective individual. Uh, of okay. course,
0: not, not everybody who, f- who writes after Kant's contribution buys this move. Herder, mm. in particular, is quite resistant to it.
2: Hmm. Mm.
0: Did you get a chance to look at that?
1: Yeah, yeah, cuz for Herder um there is a degree to which subjectivity is important, but rather than Kant's idea of individuals being autonomous or self-determining, for Herder uh what matters is the diversity of cultures in a providential order. So God has ordained that the world is structured in such a way that um, there is a lot of kind of cultural diversity. Each culture, each nation, can have its own spirit and can um, pave its own path. But these cultures and nations can coexist with each other peacefully. They don't necessarily determine their own fate, but they uh, they they do have their own aesthetics and their own tastes, their own. Uh, language, and uh, this means that, that that Herder is very keen on aesthetic um, diversity rather than on Kant's uh, supposed subordination of aesthetics to to some kind of uh, rationalism to some kind of uh, yeah. and, and, and this also of goes
0: after the disinterestedness right because yes. Since for Kant, if we're to appreciate art in a disinterested way, it's not to do with our particular uh, position or motivation, right? But if different cultures have different aesthetics, then our position and our aesthetic taste are intimately bound up it, and can't be so neatly disentangled.
1: Yes, yes, which gets to the idea that maybe aesthetics are political, which I think Kant hints on, but it doesn't fully take to its um, conclusion
0: well there's this argument that if you apply the categorical imperative you know act as, as if w- what you will would be a universal law if you apply that to the appreciation of art and say when you say something is beautiful you're saying that uh, universally it ought to be appreciated as beautiful Yeah, that feels very imperialistic I think mm. to Herder in a sense it, it mm. feels very very impositional on what for Herder is a kind of natural diversity of cultures.
1: Yes. Yes. And I guess someone like uh Fichte would lie perhaps between Kant and Herder because on the one hand Fichte um agreed with Kant uh to some degree on on autonomy on individual autonomy being the, the central value and thus on reason being the rule by which we can make um make aesthetic judgments and um uh, fichte associates um kind of aesthetic imp- aesthetic improvement with um the with the scholar the the, the quote the teacher of the human race who through reason and experience is able to lift people up um to to a higher to a higher moral plane and um, that's got some, I guess, Kantian um, aspect to it, and it's still placing an emphasis on reason having this kind of homogenizing, unifying role. Um, But at the same time, uh, Fichte um, is a, a nationalist like Herder, and Fichte, in the Addresses to the German Nation, argues that what defines a nation is the language and the common history which um, includes kind of um, myths and poetry and aesthetics, I think, as a, as a consequence too. And so um, that there's an extent to which these, um, these positions, Kant's emphasis on autonomy on um, the autonomy of reason as the uh, foundation of aesthetics, and Herder's emphasis on. Diversity in a providential order um, a- a- as the fundamental criterion here that, that, there, that there is interplay between them and fichte right autonomy works
0: differently autonomy works differently on these accounts because in Kant's case, what you have the autonomy or the freedom to do is to submit yourself to the universal, whereas in the case of herder uh, or uh, I think I think also significantly Fichte. Uh, what you have the autonomy to do is to be, to some degree, plural.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, there's an extent to which it's not really o- o- autonomy for Herder, because it's not the uh, individual, the nation determining its own fate, but following this providential order. Uh, and the plurality, the individuality, is the point. Whereas for Kant, individuality is not the point. It's a kind of autonomy that's uniform, Um
0: Right, and this gets at the distinction between individuality and autonomy. Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. Because autonomy doesn't necessarily give you the right to be distinctive, although I think when people use the word autonomy now, they think about it as a synonym for liberty in the conventional modern sense. And they think of it as a term which means being free to differentiate yourself or to be you. Uh, But that's not what autonomy necessarily means. Autonomy can mean a process by which you, uh, of your own accord, come to some universal destination.
2: Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Whereas individuality emphasizes the distinctiveness of the individual, autonomy just recognizes the, the individual as free to act, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this is one of the classic big... Issues with Kant that people have is that he's emphasizing autonomy, but he's also emphasizing submission to universal law. So he's got autonomy, but he doesn't have individuality. Yes, yes. At least not in the raw form. There are, of course, later Kantians who have tried to uh, adjust or amend the theory to change it.
1: And then there's the question of what unites individuality and autonomy. And I think the thing that unites these conceptions is subjectivity the emphasis on the subject uh, whether the subject is conceived as a particular individual or as a, a as a kind of organism like culture or nation um fish fichte's nation for instance is in in some respects a macrocosm of the kantian individual fichte Fisch, uh, thinks that just as the individual should determine um their own destiny, so should the nation. Um, and I think subjectivity probably plays some r- role with Herder as well, because the emphasis is still on on tastes and on uh, the the role of aesthetics in this notion of of plurality uh, and what is right. plural. Well with yeah. Herder,
0: it's so much about it's so much about natural variation, because Herder is very much a naturalist, and I think that core. Difference between Herder and Kant is very important because Herder is a naturalist and Kant is not. Herder is going to take his cues about how aesthetics works from observing how it works in nature, mm. right? And in nature, there's lots of plurality with regard to taste. Mm. Now, Kant is more likely to frame some of this plurality as the product of mistake.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Because rationalism creates a much larger basis for major mistakes. Because if we are engaging with concepts that are difficult to fully grasp through an aesthetic medium, which is to some degree imitative and to some degree distortive, potentially, or which can easily be used in a distortive way, then it's much more likely that we'll make mistakes about our judgments. Mm. And I think this is something that Kant and Plato have in common. Both Kant and Plato have a big emphasis on a priori uh, abstract truth. Yes. Which is not straightforwardly something you can pick up by observing the physical world in the way that naturalists do.
1: Yes, though with different different anchors. I think the subject as the anchor of a priori truth in in Kant. And a kind of objective transcendent truth, uh, the good being the anchor of Plato's rationalism. And I think that, that, yes, that there's, might be, there's
0: much more emphasis on subjectivity in Kant and, than in Plato. And I think
1: that, yes. that might be, I think I want to mark this out as a unifying theme here, that uh, the emphasis on aesthetics, um, I think tends to be associated more with a, um, somewhat more subjective perception because the subject perceives and so it is the subject who uh, either creates or constructs or is the filter uh, through which uh, aesthetics can be apprehended aesthetics are something kind of proper to the subject um, it, you know if there weren 't subjects if there weren 't people to perceive the world then the world wouldn't be uh, you know seen as beautiful or sublime or anything else. Um, you need and subjects to do that. it's a very 18th that.
0: century move that the emphasis on subjects is a very 18th century move and it comes to a significant degree out of the political change that's going on in the period where you have these larger and larger states, which uh, less and less straightforwardly bind people to collectives, right? You don't have the, the kind of republicanism that you, you once had, you don't have uh, ancient reciprocity arrangements in, in small communities or uh, even in uh, imperial states. You don't have the medieval emphasis on uh, Catholic unity in the in the Catholic world. So what you have, because these sources of big picture unity, which caused us to think more in terms of larger things than the individual unit, indeed, Plato doesn't use the term individual uh, in Greek ever at all. Uh, the rise of of this kind of society which more heavily atomizes people and doesn't bind them so much to community lends itself to philosophy which considers the individual's perspective on its own in a more siloed-off way.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But Kant wants to prevent this from getting us away from the universal. So Kant wants to find a way to reunite this subjectivity with the universal.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Rather than, say, celebrating subjective struggle for its own sake, as Nietzsche will eventually do.
1: Yeah, Kant finds a kind of objectivity in the subject um, because Kant thinks that subjects share a basic conceptual structure, a way of understanding the world, uh, our basic faculties of perception, and understanding,
0: um, right now, if yeah. you look at the the pluralist theorists that we've talked about here, so you know, Herder and, and Fichte, for example, these guys are not making a Nietzschean move. They're not saying that it's just a struggle among different subjective national aesthetics, a power struggle that goes on and on. That's not the argument. Even though a lot of people who are familiar with the nationalism and view say Fichte as part of the nationalism origin story, often position him that way. That's not really what's going on. The idea is is that part of how you get uh, you know, in the case of herder it's that we have a natural pluralism that comes out of nature and isn't a product of there being different truths but of there being one natural world which has lots of different contexts, right so there's some unity in herder's account in in the sense that all of these different peoples are in the same natural space. But a lot of naturalists emphasize that the natural world creates lots of different situations all the time and that therefore to have an abstract principle and to try to apply it to all these different situations is a mistake. That the variation among the situations will make uh, individual principles fail when they're abstracted away from those situations and that they can only be utile in in those distinct contexts. So there's the naturalist move of Herder, which is, is very, very different from Kant. Then you've got Fichte. And with Fichte, the nation might be engaged in a kind of process of trying to get at the universal, but the nation is going to do that as an autonomous subject, right? So instead of the emphasis being on the individual's autonomy, for Fichte, the autonomy is, is, is given to the nation, right? But the nation is still, to a large degree, on a quest for the universal. So the nation is exercising its freedom, but its freedom is still bounded by the universal. It's just that individual nations have got to, for Fichte, do this autonomously. And for that reason, Fichte positions the German nation-state as an example To others, right? Why is it an example? It's because others are supposed to use their national autonomy in a similar kind of way, right? And so there is this emphasis in in Herder's account still on autonomy involving some kind of submission to universal, right? So it's not like Nietzsche's view or, say, the view of Carl Schmitt later on, where you have these different nation states that are just supposed to struggle over an irreducibly subjective value set.
2: Hmm.
0: Right? In Herder's account, there's there's the unity of the natural, which is just always going to be different because the natural by its nature involves different contexts and involves contingency. And in the case of Fishta, you have uh, still this universal that the nations are pursuing. But what has really changed is that instead of the individual being the autonomous agent, it's the nation that is doing it. And that brings more collectivity into Fishta's account.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I I guess for, for Herder you do have
1: um these uh these nations or cultures or fatherlands as he puts it. Um but they aren't necessarily connected to a centralized state whereas they are for for Fichte. Uh and Fichte recommends a closed commercial state, a state which has internal trade but not external trade. whereas Herder is quite keen on External trade, so long as it's peaceful, um, um, because Herder is not so keen on the state as a container
0: of the nation. Because um, Herder is just is just a naturalist. Mm. Herder isn't doesn't have some kind of big abstraction that you're supposed to get at through an autonomous process. Mm. The pursuit of such an abstraction would take Herder too far away from naturalism.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. And that's why it's okay for Herder that different nations find different things aesthetically enjoyable because they don't all have to aim at some abstraction.
1: Yes. And there's often been a comparison made between Herder and Hume. Um, and Herder um, read Hume. And um, I think, I mean, perhaps it's a more historical emphasis on variation uh, as opposed to a more philosophical emphasis that we get on Canton. Uh, on
0: unity, um, because and it's yeah. just a really sharp difference on the role of contingency. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you look at at any of the naturalist or empiricist theorists of this period, they are constantly emphasizing that you can't have universal rules or universal laws because natural contexts are too various.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right now. I think that to some degree we can rescue rationalists from this critique. Yeah. If you look at, at Plato in Republic in Republican, his metaphor of the sea captain, when he talks about how the sea captain has to pay attention to all of the changing conditions that the ship is in, right? Uh, Plato is not ad- advocating that you have some kind of singular principle and you ignore the context and apply the principle regardless of the situation. Plato treats the good as a kind of partially inaccessible form which we are constantly having to contemplate and interpret and try to realign with circumstance, right? And try to, if we can understand it, then we can apply it to the context. And as the context changes, we have to continue to think about it because the way it will apply will vary right? Mm. So you you have the form of the good, but the form of the good's application and the way that we conceptualize it in our world is always going to vary. And it must vary in order to stay in accordance with the form, because the form is not something you can just know and then not have to contemplate anymore. It is something that you are constantly moving away from or moving toward, right? Now, I think to a significant degree, Kant tries to incorporate elements of this and mm. to a significant degree, Kant gets shortchanged by his critics, who kind of uh, reduce the theory a bit mm. into something that's easier to easier to use.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: Because Kant is, as you emphasized at the top of the episode, very interested in art as a mediator between uh, the the nature and and ideas.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. And if it's a mediator, then of course it's not a perfect mediator. It's not. It's not something which gives direct access. Yeah. Right. So when Kant says act uh, in, if you, in such a way that you would will something to be a universal law, I'm not sure that means that Kant says that there's a set of rules or a set of laws that you could draw up for morality that we could just all permanently. Subscribe to. What I think Kant is is saying there is that in each situation, you should act in the way that you would want any person to act in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What you wish the universal law would be in that context. And that allows you to potentially in different contexts reread the universal law. Yeah right that's why kant doesn't give us a list of laws yeah he gives us a maxim right and that's why more contemporary kantians the way they get out of the traditional critiques of kant is to make the particular laws that they advocate for uh, ever more complex and multifaceted because if you're if you respond to kant by saying well i think the particular rule you've got there is not a good rule you know then the answer to that is to complexify your rules so that your rules account for a wider variety of situations and to bend and have different rules applying in, in different situations. Yeah. yeah. Right? The, the key thing is act in such a way that, that you would want any other person to act in that situation. It's not act according to a rigid and, and dogmatic set of laws that you've drawn up prior to interacting with the natural world and refuse to bend from them. It's not like Kant gives you a set of, of commandments that you're supposed to follow.
1: Yeah, yeah, as shown by the fact that his um, political theory is not particularly utopian um, and is quite accommodating towards brutal realities... Uh, f- for instance, his denial of um, the right to rebel against states, because he's wary that that would uh, that would undermine the condition for uh, living a moral life, which is being alive, um, because otherwise yeah. you'd get civil disorder and and civil war. And so he's <laughs> uh, and th- there's a sense in which uh, Kant is uh, one of the one of the first historical materialists because of his emphasis on how trade and war shape shape states.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of naturalist theorists tend to polemically attack rationalists on the grounds that they believe that the rationalist has some kind of fixed concept of the good that they've reified as, as dogmatically the good itself and which they are applying rigidly but rationalism usually involves the recognition that concepts are deviant from the real and that our representations our artistic representations our conceptual representations are are not the same and therefore require continuous revision and continuous reconsideration and in that sense you could say that that art is philosophy by other means yeah you know it because concepts themselves are imitative of of the real. For rationalists, a yeah. physical depiction is is not that different from a concept.
2: Yeah, Plato yeah. makes
0: the argument that physical depictions have even more potential to be misleading than concepts. But even if that's the case, it's not as if concepts are not misleading.
1: Yeah, yeah, and. Of course, I guess the, the the irony in comparing Plato and Kant is, Plato being the one critiquing aesthetics, is that Plato, much more than Kant, used um, aesthetic kind of metaphors um, to illustrate his arguments, whereas Kant didn't really d- do that as much.
0: Right, and... and- and this, this is often kind of framed as a two-dimensional thing where Plato is saying, boo, poetry bad, and other people are saying, yay, poetry good. I think part of this is, just comes out of the degree to which so many theorists neglect Plato and read him you know, once in undergrad and then stereotype him heavily and just keep him around as somebody to, to invoke in a stereotypical way, uh, you know, as a stand-in for things that you don't like. but. Plato uses aesthetic metaphor all the time. Plato references poetry as an essential part of the education of the guardians in the same dialogue in which he criticizes poetry and says, we have to throw the poets out of the city. I think people read that as we have to throw all the poets out of the city. What Plato is instead saying is that certain kinds of poetry are not being reliably taught in such a way that they are helpful and that the the people who teach that kind of poetry in the wrong kind of way have to be stopped. So what Plato is saying is that certain kinds of aesthetic metaphor are very dangerous because they're misleading, but that doesn't mean that every use of aesthetic metaphor is equally dangerous or misleading. Indeed, Because for Plato, the only way that we can even get at form is through imitative concept. We are constantly immersed in a world of illusory imitations that we mustn't take too seriously. Yeah. Right? We mustn't take any of them too seriously. We have a certain mortal ignorance about all of these things, mortal ignorance being the language that Plato uses in the Apology, or which Plato has Socrates use. Uh,
1: well, um, and oftentimes the, the,
0: people depict the Apology as if it's discontinuous with the rest of Plato's thought because it comes earlier than the Middle Dialogues. Yeah. The, the f- the phrase mo- there's a lot of emphasis on the limits of what we can know even in the Middle Dialogues. There's, you know, even in the Republic, the Guardians screw up. The reproduction, of their reproduction, and the education of the next generation. There's fallibility, at even in the dialogues which are thought to be Plato's more dogmatic dialogues.
1: Mm, yeah, the, the phrase "mortal ing- ignorance" in particular, I think, was coined by Elizabeth Baringer in um, Political Theory in the article "Mortal Democracy" yes, in yes. Plato's Apology. Yeah,
0: yes, as a description of what's going on in the apology.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. That there's just there's serious limits on what we can know. Certainly about things that are not uh, part of the the physical world. But as we see in the Republic, there are relatively basic things that the guardians get wrong that are quite earthly and pedestrian, and and not yeah you know, not all that ethereal. And, and I, if they can get those things wrong, they can certainly get the big ethereal things wrong.
1: Yeah. Uh, and in the, I've just noticed this in the abstract to the, to the article, uh, to Baringer's article, um, um, Socrates, um, is quoted as saying in the apology that we do not know if death is a good or a bad thing. And this being the kind of premise for mortal ignorance, that if Socrates doesn't know things, then, then, then how, then how on earth do the rest of us know things? And, um, I mean, it's a relatively, uh, um, um, uh, you know, a, a point that may or may not be substantial. Um, but it reminds me of, of when Hamlet, um, in, uh, the, the, the play Hamlet, um, is, uh, meditating on, 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 on death on in to be or not to be. And, and, and he concludes that solidically by, um, uh, by saying that, well, um, we don't know what we don't know what comes after death it's the undiscovered country from whose burn no traveler returns uh, it puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of um, and thus conscience stuff make cowards of us all so so Hamlet is is saying a similar thing to what Socrates is saying that you can't really know um, uh, the, the difference being that Hamlet is uh, in, in this soliloquy meant to be on, on some interpretations of the soliloquy, contemplating uh suicide whereas socrates isn't given the choice um but um the 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 similarity is that what they're both considering is whether they can know something quite fundamental about uh, about existence about mortality uh which is what happens when mortality ends and because we don't know that the idea is that well we don't really know much at all um
0: yeah. yeah, and I think that oftentimes the early Socratic dialogues are taken to, to depict Socrates as more of a skeptic than he is, and the middle dialogues are taken to depict Plato as more of a dogmatist than he is. And this is often because the people who are making these judgments don't really see a middle position between dogmatism and skepticism, mm-hmm. and therefore aren't able to articulate the real position, which I think, well, perhaps not in every dialogue the same, I I think there's a lot more similarity between Socrates' position in the early dialogues and Plato's position in the middle. Uh, yes. There is a lot of emphasis on form being not fully graspable. The, the issue is that an empiricist will often say, well, if you can't grasp it, then how can you use it? Right. A naturalist will often say, well, if you, if you can't fully grasp this abstraction, then what good is it at all? Right? Now, of course, empiricists and naturalists, when they take seriously their own epistemology, run into the same trouble. You know, how is it that nature and and epistemology can tell you anything specific when you can't be absolutely certain that any of that is real?
1: Yeah, yeah, and right? yeah, you but, can't yeah. be sure
0: that your senses are real. You can't be sure that what you've observed is real. Yeah. So, how can you make any judgments based on something that when you can't be sure it's real? Yeah, this. The fundamental mistake in, in both the, that critique of rationalism and in that uh, skeptical approach to the naturalism is, is that it involves a standard for what counts as knowledge that is too ambitious to be met by any claim and therefore produces a kind of frustrating paradox that leads ultimately into either on the one hand nihilism and the rejection of the possibility of making any claim or on the other hand a kind of a flippant pragmatism where you kind of throw up your hands and quit doing philosophy because it's it, it's just more convenient to live than to think about it it comes from this mistake of thinking that stuff either has to be absolutely certain rigid concrete yes fact or it means nothing and is totally garbage and when people get stuck in that back and forth between Dogmatism and, and nihilism, it's very hard to get out of that once you're into it. If you can't see the golden mean between those things, it becomes very limiting for your philosophy and, and your, your way of life because essentially it causes you to oppose philosophy to living. Because living requires you to make provisional decisions to make decisions based on provisional knowledge that is not full, that is not complete, that is not total. if you have a philosophy which requires you to have those things before you can usefully reason, uh, then you have a philosophy that is not useful in life and and that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, but to bring it back to aesthetics, yeah, so we've kind of we've talked around a few of these different positions. Uh, what do you think, Edmund? do you think that art can play this mediating role and if so how fraught is this role is it is it something that can be done relatively easily or with great difficulty how hard is it for art to play the role that it's meant to play here
2: Mm. well I think that
1: the question of whether art and aesthetics and um, particularly aesthetics concerning um, uh, as in Kant's view, um, beauty and the sublime. Um, I think whether this kind of aesthetic um, can be used to elevate us morally and try to find some kind of balance, I think. Um the answer to this question must itself be balanced. There's an extent to which it can and there's an extent to which it can't. Um for instance, in Goeth's forced, um the uh, the character forced after um you know, famously um being um uh, brought into a, a a pact with uh with Mephistopheles, um, a kind of a figure of uh, a, a demon or um, some kind of personation of the devil, um, where f- forces made to um, uh, well forced accepts uh, the, the the proposition because forced is quite tired of living a quite philosophical scientific life, being dedicated to his community of of healing people during during outbreaks of plague, and he he he's feeling very restless, and so Mephistopheles comes at just the right time to tempt, forced, um, to, um, to say that Mephistopheles will give forced whatever he wants in in this life, so long as forced then serves, uh, the the, the devil later on, and uh. Uh, Forst signs up to this 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 pact um, and Forst's journey uh, I think is one which is kind of profoundly aesthetic because the first thing that happens to Forst um, well one of the very first things that happens is that he falls in love and he falls in love um, after going to a well, kind of unusual way of falling in love goes to a, a kind of witch's kitchen uh, that Mephistopheles brings him to, and he sees in the in the mirror instead of himself, sees an image of a, f- a future lover, um, and he is um, uh, given something to drink by Mephistopheles, which Mephistopheles says will make forced uh, fall in love with whoever he sees, um, as if they were um, Helen, Helen of Helen, like Helen of Helen of Troy. And, um, so, uh, so Force does go fall in love with somebody called, uh, Margaret who Forst uh, thinks is very beautiful, but Margaret doesn't think she's particularly beautiful, uh, works very hard and, uh, had a kind of traumatic, uh, childhood too. Many of her family members are, are dead. Um, but force nevertheless persists and, uh, Sadly, in, in this part one of of, of the of, of the play things do kind of fall apart um and uh, in the effort to make things make things work out things get progressively worse and uh i think i think it's fair to say that at the, at the end of the, the 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 first part of the play um you know there's a question of whether whether it was worth it which is why this you know phrase forced impact is used quite negatively and people say well you know, you shouldn't do a Forcedian pact, because you know, that's doing a pact with the devil. That'll get you um the, that that won't get you what you want. But in the second part of uh of, of Forced, um something interesting happens. Uh Forced goes around the place. Um, well, the, the story goes around the place and comes back occasionally to uh uh to uh forst and uh, Mephistopheles. And at one point, uh Force and Mephistopheles are um, doing a political endeavor this time. Instead of focusing on uh, on, on the microcosm, they're focusing on the macrocosm, and uh, they're getting inv- uh, involved in in, in in high politics. But Force gets quite tired of it, and so this time, instead of uh, falling for someone who Mephistopheles says looks like. Um, Helen of Troy, uh, us, uh, uh, Force actually does go in, uh, uh, f- f- fall in love with um, with a kind of ghost of 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 Helen, um, and it doesn't really work out. And Helen has to go back to get, go back to heaven after after coming um, to Earth um, and attempt to reconcile force's romanticism with uh, Helen's classicism uh fails um but nonetheless afterwards forced finds a kind of new political energy and he becomes i i kind of think an almost moses figure in leading his 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 people to a, to a better to a better place he uh he manages to try to master the forces of nature with the handy help of Mephistopheles, who has become quite weak at this point and is really just serving force. And um, and so and then force there's a rebellion and force suppresses the rebellion and there's lots of um, kind of peace and harmony it seems at the end. And he looks at what he has done um, and uh, and you know breathes a sigh of relief and passes away. And it seems at this, at this stage, that after going through this long journey, that whether or not the, the, the Faustian pact was worth it in the beginning, that Faust has gone through a journey that has, through, through encountering all these different images, these, uh, these images of beauty, um, both in the, the the people that Faust falls in love with, um, when he's, you know, he's devastated after... Uh, after these kind of relationships fall through. Um, but it spurs him um, to, uh, to do better in the world. And um, the, uh, the, 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 the play ends with a kind of famous phrase that the eternal feminine draws us onward. The, the idea that some kind of image of... Um, of beauty or transcendence is what is driving forst and therefore aesthetics that beauty and the sublime is um part of the way in which forst elevates himself from a condition of kind of almost uh nihilism and despair at the beginning of the the, the first part of forst through a lot of despair uh, to at the very end um doing some uh, uh, doing some great things. And so uh, I, I, I think in in, um, in Goeth we see the role of aesthetics as both being something that's very unbalanced, very unwieldy, uh, very difficult to deal with, but also something that can lead people up a moral path. And, and perhaps, you know, whether aesthetics can play Kant's mediating role it is itself a balance between uh, between going all in and saying it's all aesthetic and also having a sense of, having a sense of what lies behind what what lies beyond uh, the uh, the veil of perception.
0: Yeah, I think this is an excellent point. So, it doesn't just have to be the case that aesthetics leads us to think about things in such a way that uh, causes us to perceive truth or to act rightly. It might also be the case that even when we make mistakes and we pursue the wrong things that pursuing those wrong things is part of what eventually enables us to discover the right things. Yeah. And so sometimes a form of aesthetics, which might seem to just be misleading, it is misleading, but it's misleading in the short term in a way which facilitates learning in the long term. Mm. Now, the question is, I think that there's still probably some stuff aesthetically that is so dangerous to to get involved with, say, for instance, heroin uh, is so dangerous to get involved with because of what it will do to you that it can't be viewed as, as a productive mistake. But I think often romantic relationships can be productive mistakes. Mm. Yeah,
1: and that's certainly the case with forced.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And perhaps periods in which you like a particular kind of, of artistic. Movement that you might later come to to see was not great. Mm. You know, like a lot of little kids really like superhero movies, but perhaps you know, some people never grow out of that. Some people they like superhero movies and they go on watching them for their whole lives. Um, but some people watch superhero movies, and as they watch superhero movies, they discover that superhero movies are deeply stupid. <laughs> in a very fundamental way, in a way that they might not have discovered if they hadn't continued watching really stupid superhero movies until their minds became so bored with their superficiality that they began to recognize their uselessness. Mm. And I, I I mentioned superhero movies in part because I hate them, but uh, because I think they are a very typical kind of aesthetic or artistic mistake. It Oftentimes we are attracted to art, which is cathartically empowering for us, which gives us a feeling of individual strength, uh, individual control, individual power over the environment. Right And all of these things reinforce the ego and the separateness of the individual from the environment, right so in the superhero narrative, the hyper powerful being is able to impose uh, a a particular set of moral principles that are often reified into dogma onto the unsuspecting population of the film, yeah in a way which the film portrays as as valorous, right? Yeah. And some of the the slightly better superhero movies go, well, oh, isn't the value of the superhero a little bit, you know, difficult, you know, it might not be so obvious that the superhero is making the right call, right? That's the slightly more sophisticated version. But still in that version, the individual superhero, it's up to them to decide what is good and what is bad and to dictate it, right? You're still not being invited to make decisions with other people together in some kind of collective, uh, or or as part of some kind of whole. The superhero is still not invited to be part of the universe, to be part of the community, to be to, to recognize that the superhero is not above or distinct from the people who are affected by the superhero's decisions. Yeah,
1: it's kind of a subject-object dualism turning people into objects and the superhero into the soul subject in this kind of aesthetic right. psychodrama. The superhero
0: becomes a, a craftsman for the, of the world. The superhero makes the world into whatever image the superhero wants. And at most, the superhero questions whether the superhero's image is really the one the superhero wanted, mm. right? Or really the, the best one for the superhero to to make. But at no point are the ordinary people in a superhero movie treated as anything more than props in the superhero's growth journey.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So there is no there's no politics in superhero movies. Politics is abolished in favor of the superhero using enormous natural power to cathartically impose Realities. Uh, I, think, um, I think something like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight might be an exep- exception to that rule. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it is. I think Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight is precisely in this category of films which invite the superhero to question whether the superhero's fixed set of rules and norms are the right set, but which still involve the superhero acting in a largely anti-political way with the political process vilified as this uh, threat to the superhero's power.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Rather than treat it as something that the superhero should genuinely be subject to. In most superhero movies that consider politics, politics is the little people trying to stop the superhero from imposing values.
1: Yeah, especially in Marvel movies, I think.
0: Especially, in, Mar- but I, I do think even in The Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah. Even in The Dark Knight, the villain, the, uh, one of the villains is the politician, right? And the politician is at least elected. Batman is just some rich guy in a cape. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So I, I do think that that particular genre is aesthetically extraordinarily repulsive. But I do think that some people watch those movies, some people, not everyone, some people watch those movies and eventually come to realize how profoundly stupid they are and outgrow them. And so sometimes bad aesthetic contributions can be part of someone's journey. Uh, I mean, I, I, and a lot depends on whether we think, A, would it be possible for everybody to not make the mistake of believing in a superhero ontology? If it is possible for it to be the case that everyone might not make that mistake, then maybe superhero movies are just profoundly destructive. But maybe it's the case that not everyone is going to realize that no matter what we do, but that some people will realize it in part by interacting with superhero movies, right? So to, to think back to Plato and, and Homer's poetry, which Plato condemns, because Homer's poetry is similarly all about heroes doing whatever they think is is right uh, and is a kind of superhero content. Uh, Plato could could say that uh, maybe it's possible for everybody to not buy into Homer if we get rid of Homer. But that's not what Plato says. Plato says that only a relatively small number of people are going to be able to see through things like Homer in any case. Well, if that's true, do we need to get rid of Homer? Or is reading Homer part of realizing that we should get beyond Homer? Yeah. By contemplating broken narratives, is that part of how we understand that they're not great? Yeah. And I watch a lot of bad content all the time in part because I think that watching bad content is part of how we see mistakes.
2: Yeah, I get-
0: When I was a kid, I was trying to persuade my parents to let me watch The Simpsons, which they were initially a bit skeptical of. And the argument that I gave my parents is that you know, Homer is a bad example. Homer and Bart are bad examples, and by watching them, you can learn what not to do.
2: mm. Anyway, you were, you were going to say. Yeah,
1: because I, I guess in the end, the, 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 the fundamental reason to answer your question at the very beginning of the episode, Benjamin, about why I'm interested in this topic is that I, I think there's often this opposition made between aesthetics and substance, between reality and appearance, or between perhaps kind of more elaborately, between the subject um, who perceives and the object which is perceived. And I think to some degree, while this can be a helpful distinction, is ultimately a false distinction, um, or at least is a distinction which is quite fragile, because the way in which we judge aesthetics, uh, perhaps the, the, the way in which you've been evaluating superhero movies just now, suggest that the, the way in which we judge aesthetics is often by relating them to reality, to substance, and to see whether they can tell us anything about reality or or, 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 or what's substantially true, or whether they can't, um, whether they can help us, you know, in the real world, uh, you know, elevate elevate uh, the condition of mere nature or whether whether they can't but but I think by the same token and this is one other argument I want to make that i I think that you know it is the case that there's a degree to which substance has a kind of priority over aesthetics and reality has a priority over appearance kind of obvious reasons that people think that truth uh, is more you know value that, uh, valuable than than, than than fiction but at the same time I think that there is a truth in the Fiction, that there is reality in the appearance. And that, in the same way that the, the subject depends on the object um, to have something to perceive, where would the subject be without the object without something to perceive? By the same token, where would the object be without the subject? Well, it might still be an object, but I think it is better to be perceived than to not be perceived. and f- For instance, with the good, I want to make the claim that, well, you know, the, the good is, um, in Neoplatonist Iris Murdoch's framing, the sovereign over all other values, um, because it is right to do what is right, it is good to do what, what is good and other things. It's really the only indefinable. Uh, value. Everything else can kind of be broken into parts and defined in some way. But the good is the one indefinable thing towards which we ought to strive. But I think it is good for the goods to have um, people who are perceiving it or endeavouring to partake in it. Um, And uh, this isn't, isn't an explanation for why uh, why there are things that exist apart from the apart from the good? But I, I think that if if the good is the kind of the the supreme object of all contemplation and of all moral action, then I think that the existence of subjects uh, and of smaller objects as kind of shadows of the of the good is itself at least if not entirely good that there is something good to it. There is something good to having subjects. Who can perceive objects in in, in the same way that subjects need objects? I wonder if objects need subjects too, and therefore, just as aesthetics is vacuous and meaningless if it doesn't have any substance behind it, uh, in the same way, I I wonder if substance, um, for it to be truly substantial, needs to be in some way uh, aesthetically dressed up so that it can be perceived. to the full?
0: Well, I certainly don't think we can escape representation. I think that I made the analogy earlier in the show. I think concepts are quite a bit like artistic depictions. Plato ranks them and says that concepts are closer to form than artistic depictions, but they're still analogous to artistic depictions in that they're not the same as form and they can be misleading. Mm. Uh, even if you take Plato's argument that concepts are closer, uh, even if they're closer, they're still not the same thing as form and therefore potentially misleading. And I would argue potentially more insidious because we are less on our guard when it comes to concepts. There are so many people who, if you use a concept and and there's some discussion about what the concept means, think you can just open up a dictionary and that that will end the argument. Mm. That you can just appeal to some kind of authority and that that will end it. At least when it comes to art, we're aware that there's controversy about what an artistic depiction ought to mean or how it ought to be viewed or ought to be interpreted, and that it's not obvious. Right? Yeah. But with words, we often think that there's some kind of authority as to as to what words mean that we can just appeal to and avoid having to think about their meanings and how their meanings shift and change. Yeah. So I think that I think that everything we do is to some degree aesthetic yes. Uh, yes. for that reason. I think that we have to be very watchful of everything we do because everything is aesthetic. So I, I don't take the view that we can avoid aesthetics, certainly, or that you know anything that is aesthetic is to be just straightforwardly dismissed because I think we can't escape it. But I do think because everything that is aesthetic is to some degree alienated from the realities, yeah. that we have to be very careful about anything we do that is stylistic. And we have to be careful about the stylistic stuff overtaking or distracting or misleading us. Uh, and I, I say that with concepts too, not just what we would think of as conventional artistic depictions like movies or music. You know, The episodes that we did on liberty and equality, and that I, I hope we'll do another one soon on representation and maybe a few other ideas, you know, those episodes are very much about how we can use definitions of terms to mislead each other. Right right the aesthetic and that in yeah. thinking that interact, know, in, in yeah. reifying a particular definition of liberty as as the correct definition we have a kind of artistic notion of liberty yeah that is is uh, much more contingent than we often think it is and i think the first the first step in realizing that is to look at the vast array of different ways particular concepts have been understood throughout the history of thought and in the same way look at the vast number of of ways that people can depict anything in particular in in artistic media and the vast number of ways each of those depictions can be or has been interpreted especially if you look at something old like like homer and the sheer number of ways in which people have responded to that work it makes you realize that there is it's not so simple. You can't just look it up in a dictionary. There's no dictionary of art that says this is what Homer means, and and there is for some reason a dictionary that says this is what liberty means. But that's you know, stupid and useless.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, and I guess in, in in practical politics, there's sometimes a distinction made between the quote unquote substance of policy and the quote-unquote aesthetic of of the rhetoric that is used. And of course, politics can only really work if you have both and you wield both well.
0: Right. But when I'm talking about current events and I make the critique that this is just aesthetic, I say that sometimes. Uh, What I'm saying is that in that particular case, this thing that someone is doing has an aesthetic appeal, but does not actually address a problem. Or perhaps even is counterproductive from the point of view of resolving a problem. That it's just cathartic.
1: Right. But but by the same token, isn't the problem itself on some level, on some level, aesthetic,
0: if all things that humans do are
1: filtered through aesthetics?
0: Of course, of course. But the rhetorical point I'm making when I say that something is just an aesthetic contribution, I'm saying that it is just stylistically <laughs> satisfactory.
1: I find that you, that you said rhetorical point, that could also be framed as the aesthetic point you're making when you're critiquing aesthetics.
0: Yes, of course. Of course it uh, can. Right? I, I guess I mean, perhaps- that, that doesn't mean that I'm not making a very relevant point when yes. I say, for instance, that- uh, you know, somebody, somebody giving a very assertive speech while they continue to govern in much the same way that they've always governed, is is aesthetically, you know, that they've made an aesthetic contribution that is not substantive. I'm making the point that in this particular instance, a gulf has emerged between the image and the real, mm. right? And and that the image is being used in a misleading way in this particular instance. That's not to say that every every artistic contribution, every aesthetic contribution is misleading, or or that they're all equally misleading. But it's to point out in the instance where I make that critique that that particular contribution is a misleading aesthetic contribution yeah, uh, that doesn't properly go with the other stuff that it should go with.
1: I, I wonder if the point is that the aesthetic isn't being used to balance between uh, the, the, the substance of the, the, the real and the substance of what ought to be enough and that we aren't achieving that is ought balance with the aesthetic that the aesthetic if it's used properly is playing a part in a kind of balance between what is and what ought to be
0: well, i think i think the aesthetic is slippery and for that reason it is easily used it can easily be used on on both sides of the issue. And this gets back into that whole discussion we had about rhetoric in the Gargas versus the Phaedrus, right? You know, the thing about rhetoric and the thing about aesthetics more broadly is that it's slippery. It can be misused. Yes.
2: Th- 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 and a-
0: oftentimes oftentimes it can be used to conflate, you know, what for Plato is bronze with what for Plato is gold. It can be used to conflate the the things that we find gratifying or cathartic with what is good for us.
1: Yeah, though in the Phaedrus, Plato argues that that you, that to have effective um, rhetoric, to have effective aesthetics, it can help to have the substance, to have philosophy. And uh, Plato thinks that philosophers can uh, tell the difference between truth and fiction, and therefore, uh, and he says this, you know, perhaps slightly ironically, perhaps not that philosophers will be better at telling lies. Uh, or at least at telling stories, telling stories that might persuade people, because philosophers are sensitive to the difference between truth and fiction. But
0: but this is meant to work for Plato in a system where the philosophers are governing and don't have to compete with the rhetorical contributions of the non-philosophers. Right? Plato is not saying that this is how it works in a democracy in the Phaedrus.
2: Okay. Hmm.
0: Quite the contrary, he suggests in the Phaedrus that Pericles wins in part by making the citizens worse, and that making the citizens worse and winning go together in the Athenian democracy. So while while Plato does suggest in the Phaedrus that there is a kind of rhetoric that could potentially be useful in the hands of a philosopher, and in the Republic he suggests that only the state should be permitted to lie, only the philosopher should be permitted to use these kinds of devices because they're so dangerous and so easily pernicious in the wrong hands. There, he's talking about cities that are not democracies. He's not talking about a political situation like our own, or even like Athens.
2: Hmm.
1: As I recall, Plato's argument is something along the lines that philosophers can make the best rhetoricians in the Phaedrus. If they put their minds to it
0: Well, they might make the best, but that won't make them the most popular i
1: think I think he's saying that they would be
0: if that
1: the because the point about the philosopher is that the philosopher takes into account all the different parts of the soul and therefore appeals to all the different parts of the city, whereas somebody of a different kind of soul or a different who who isn't philosophical will not appeal to every type of soul and therefore will have a narrower appeal than the ideal philosopher-politician would have.
0: But only in a city which is arranged in the way that Kallipolis is arranged, in the Republic, where the uh, producers have had their desires reigned in to a considerable degree by the way the state is structured. In a democracy, you have producers whose desires have not only not been restrained, but have been inflamed for Plato. So in a democracy, the producer will respond very differently.
2: Okay. Hmm.
0: Well, well, I agree with you that he is more optimistic about rhetoric in the Phaedrus than in the Gorgias. Uh, that doesn't make him a democrat.
2: Hmm.
1: No, 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 I'm not saying it, it, it does. But he, he does say in, in the Phaedrus that um, that where where is deception most likely to occur regarding things that differ much or things that differ little from one another? And Phaedrus says in response to Socrates regarding those that differ little. Socrates says, at any rate, you are more likely to escape detection as you shift from one thing to its opposite if you proceed in small steps rather than in large ones. Therefore, if you are to deceive someone else and to avoid deception yourself, you must know precisely the respects in which things are similar and dissimilar to one another. And is it really possible for someone who doesn't know what each thing truly is to detect a similarity, whether large or small, between something he doesn't know and anything else. Clearly, therefore, the state, and and Phaedra says it's impossible, and Socrates says, uh, clearly, therefore, the state of being deceived and holding beliefs contrary to what is the case comes upon people by reason of certain similarities. And could someone then, who doesn't know what each thing is, ever have the art to lead others, little by little, through similarities, away from... What is the case on each occasion to its opposite? Or could he escape this being done to himself? And Phaedrus says, never. And Socrates concludes, therefore, my friend, the art of a speaker who doesn't know the truth and chases opinions instead is likely to be a ridiculous thing, not an art at all.
0: Right, but in democracy, you have a citizenry which is, for Plato, ridiculous. Y- yeah. which is possessed by a set of ridiculous desires which are highly deviant from the good. But what
1: Socrates has just said is that, they're gonna, that it's the less effective rhetoric than the rhetoric of a philosopher who can tell the small differences.
0: Uh- no, no, that presumes that the citizens are interested in the good. But remember, because of the different types of soul, most of the citizens are not for Plato interested in the good in the first instance. So if the citizens are evaluating what counts as good rhetoric or bad rhetoric, they're going to evaluate it in terms of the things that they're driven toward. I
1: mean, th- this reads like an argument for effectiveness to me, rather than an argument about what's,
0: what's good. Only if it is the case that all of the citizens are aiming for what's good, but for Plato, that's not the case. But Okay,
1: but, 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 I, but even in Callipolis, the citizens aren't aiming at what's good. The philosophers are just telling stories which align people with what's good.
0: But in Callipolis, the philosophers are making the decisions. The citizens don't have political power. So, for Plato, once you give political power to the producers, the fact that the producers are motivated by the bronze motivator is going to derail the city utterly.
1: Okay. I mean, then you have the question, but you do have the question of the philosopher king in the first place. The philosopher king has to be pretty good at doing rhetoric, otherwise, you'll never get Callipolis in the first place.
0: Well, this is the person who wipes the slate clean for plato which is a highly difficult thing to do Mm. and which plato tells us very little about but
2: Uh. yeah
0: i I i take your your point that there is more of a positive argument for the utility of rhetoric in the phaedrus but i would still be very skeptical about suggesting that that means that for plato democracy is redeemable
1: no no I am just saying that for Plato that philosophy could be useful in in rhetoric
0: that philosophy could help politicians be better but not in, but in democracy in democracy because of the the people who are judging and their fundamental uh, mistaken values for Plato uh, you aren't going to go where you are meant to go
1: yeah Yeah. 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 It takes this kind of, this philosopher King figure to, yeah, no, I, 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 I I see what you mean there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I guess for the point I'm trying to make is that for Plato, that, that substance and aesthetics in a way go together, that, that to have the substance, you need a good aesthetic, you need a good story. Um, and I wonder if by the same token to have a good, uh, aesthetic it can it can help to have a good substance i want to think that the i guess i I want to say that the best kind of aesthetics are those which are aligned with aligned with the good um potentially
0: i think a lot turns here on whether plato is right to say that only a relatively small number of citizens are interested in what's good and are primarily driven by what's good this is a the big the big question really in plato is whether it really is the case that only a small number of people have the right kind of soul for philosophy, whether philosophy and truth and the good are that inaccessible. So it's a question about the accessibility of the good to people and whether it's something that, as many, many subsequent philosophers and political theorists have argued, that everybody has. Gandhi, for instance, argued that everybody had a kind of moral sense that could be triggered by the practice of satyagraha, by nonviolent civil disobedience, that anybody could see that a person who's being mistreated despite holding on to what they believe to be true, uh, that the truth of what they're holding on to would have an impact on you, that you would not be able to avoid or escape regardless of who you are. That's a very different argument from Plato's argument, because for Plato, the good is is much harder, much harder to grasp, uh, isn't something that is graspable by all. And that has huge consequences for the political theory. I think that both Gandhi and Plato are equally interested in truth and in having a politics which is oriented around truth. But for Plato, the inaccessibility leads to a system which is very elite-oriented. And in the case of Gandhi, it leads to a a village commune system that is, if anything, anarchistic. Mm. So, so much depends on the accessibility. How... Easy is it for people to see what's good? And so the difficult thing is that the Democrat has to argue that what is good is easier to see. Right? So the Democrat has a kind of epistemological burden, right? Uh, now, of course, if you argue that the good is impossible to see and that the good has nothing to do with decision making, that's one move that's open to the Democrat, but not the Democrat who wants to build a politics around truth, right? The Democrat who wants to build a politics around sub- just pure subjective taste around subjectivism in meta-ethics, that Democrat has an easy job because that Democrat can just say, well, the good is completely irrelevant, right? But once you've decided that politics has to in some way be about the good or about truth, then you have this question about accessibility. And so to argue for democracy in that context, you have to argue for a great deal of accessibility.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and because Plato pushes back heavily against any argument for general accessibility, that leads into the elite system of Callipolis.
1: I wonder if there's, uh, on the theme of aesthetics in particular, uh, a golden mean or balance between uh, Plato's critical position on aesthetics and um, Kant's more enthusiastic position. But on the one hand, aesthetics could, as Kant suggests, and as uh, Kind of works like Goethe's Forced uh, kind of elucidate or demonstrate. You know, aesthetics can have a, a, a role in leading people to a higher moral plane, and to some degree, Plato concedes this when he says when he tries to persuade people of the truth of the good through through these allegories, through the analogy of the sun. Sure,
0: nobody's arguing that aesthetics can't be helpful. The question is, how helpful can it be? How many people can it help? Right. Mm. Can it help everybody or only some people? Okay, and I, I think this is this is not something we can fundamentally resolve because a big part of the reason why large numbers of people to Plato don't look like they can potentially access the good is that they are occupying roles in which they are not given the kind of environment which facilitates their development, their cultivation of the virtues. Because large numbers of people have all of their time caught up in slave labor or You know what Aristotle calls vulgar activity—the pursuit of wealth or status—and they're in institutions which compel them or encourage them to do these things. We have a hard time evaluating whether it is the case that certain kinds of people just fundamentally can't do it. Uh, We can't really make that claim with any certainty because we haven't tried a society where everybody would have the opportunity to do it, where everybody would have the background conditions that. Plato and Aristotle thinks are, think are necessary for it. Mm. We've never tried that, so we don't really know. Maybe it's. I, I don't think that the, that Gandhi Plato argument can be decisively resolved. M- maybe there's a you know these degrees of aesthetics. So there
1: are conceptual aesthetics, but um, right. to you know, in philosophy. But there's also kind of narrative aesthetics. You get in literature and film, in poetry, um, and perhaps narrative aesthetics are more universal than more kind of idiosyncratic conceptual aesthetics. And perhaps the, 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 the future of um, some kind of democratic political aesthetics is through trying to align narrative aesthetics, trying to al- al- align aesthetics as stories with aesthetics as, as, as concepts, which is kind of what, 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 what Plato wants to do, but perhaps as a way of making that more open and universal or at least trying because at least in our society um the um i think it's quite crucial to try to find something that is is universal or that the argument
0: the argument i always make is that if you want it to be possible for people to appreciate aesthetics and to culturally interact with each other in a constructive way that the first step is to create a material situation which facilitates that, to give them access to leisure time, to education, to give them a sense of stability about their their lives. But how
1: how do we do that? uh, So that
0: they know that they'll have access to housing, access to, to food and water and energy and so on. If people don't have these things, then they aren't going to be able to engage in the kind of process which might lead them to constructively Engage with art. Instead they're going to engage with art from a place of precarity and uncertainty and stress, and those engagements are not productive. So I think that it's not the case. I, I disagree with Plato about there being types of souls. I don't think it's the case that some people are fundamentally incapable of watching superhero movies and realizing that they're garbage. At least not very many people. If there's anybody who is incapable, I don't think there's a large number or a number large enough that we should treat them as a class of people that is naturally essential or permanent, right? But I do think that it's the case that if you have a population that is subjected to the stress of employment, the precarity of day-to-day life is uh, really beaten down by having no time, no energy for any kind of cultivative project, and which just has to go to work and then amuse itself to de-stress, I think that kind of population, when it views Marvel movies, is unlikely to be able to see through them because it's so stressed out that it needs the catharsis of the subjective individual's empowerment as a way of coping with the stressful situation into which it's been planned. Can we
1: provide an alternative, a political aesthetics, a kind of rhetorical language that can be used to try to get
0: through the economic policy that, that, that you speak of? No, it can't just be an aesthetic. It has to be substantive. No, no, I, it can't I, I, just be an no, aesthetic. I, I'm
1: not saying just I'm saying can we can, can we do both simultaneously?
0: Well, of course if you were to do some kind of political campaign that would be about changing this fundamental situation, of course it would involve messaging and it would involve aesthetic material. Of course it would, but it can't just be a cultural move. And the trouble is, and the reason I emphasize this, and I'm not accusing you of doing it, but there are huge numbers of people out there who think that they can solve problems that have their roots in the distribution of stuff and in the way our society is structured in the relations of production. And they think they can solve these problems just by talking and just by talking differently or using different words or making different kinds of art, without combining that with any kind of project which actually changes this concrete situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? So yeah. you can have art and you can have rhetoric, but it has to be combined with an actual program which changes this situation. And if you don't have that, then these, these kind of education paradigms that are about just changing the way that we talk to people, they're not going to go anywhere in and of themselves because we are in a material situation that is largely rigged against positive interactions with art. Mm. And so we must include, and of course, the only way that we're going to be able to politically disseminate and implement a program which would change this situation is to sell that program politically in an aesthetically compelling way. So, of course, there will have to be aesthetically compelling campaigning and so on around that program, but it has to be around that program, around a program which does that. It can't just be divorced from that, divorced from political economy, uninterested in it, Uh, And and treating the economy as something that is irrelevant to its concerns.
1: And by the same token, it goes the other way around, right? That that a campaign that has a kind of good political economy policy platform, but doesn't have
0: effective uh, aesthetic
1: rhetorical messaging
0: will fail. And that we need... Right. You can't just do a wonk (laughs) thing where you just read out a white paper and expect people to be compelled by that. Yeah, this is... Of course. Of course you need messaging. Of course you do.
1: And this is why I'm wondering why whether uh, whether it really is both, and whether both substance and aesthetics need to be com- the right substance and the right aesthetics need to be
0: combined in, in politics. Of course, it's both. I didn't say it wasn't both. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> of course, it's both. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think we, we're at about an hour and a half, so uh, we should probably wrap it up. Nice. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. It's been it's been a ball. I've had a lot of fun.